1: a surprising verdict in the new york state supreme court and then are we still called to be kind you're listening to the common good Welcome to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a, a beautiful Wednesday afternoon it, it's here beautiful in the in out River. Really it's
2: fall, it's lovely, it's not too cold finally, it's not rainy like yesterday. Here's how it's I know you and
1: I have gotten old.
2: we talk we about the talk the weather. this all
1: the time. Not just that. We before the show, we were just kind of chatting. We were here early, and our conversation turned towards fall foliage.
2: Oh wait, I thought you were going to say and back pain. We also had that conversation: back pain and fall foliage. We're
1: old. Like when you were in college or in your early twenties, would you ever have turned to a friend and been like, "Those leaves (laughs) are really beautiful these (laughs) down (laughs) here."
2: Nope, nope. And I also would have not been like, "Oh, my back's spasming. Do you have ibuprofen, Brian?" (laughs) Yep, you're right. You're right. We're old. It happened.
1: It is happened. Well, we're glad right. that you're with Good. us on this Wednesday afternoon. Beautiful fall day here in the Chicagoland area. Hope that everybody is doing well. Aubrey, something we have uh, for two years talked about every day when Ian was here and when you took over for Ian, uh, something we talked about every day, but I don't feel like we have talked about in a while. What's that? COVID.
2: <laughs> I've heard of it.
1: Yeah, but it feels like it's just there now, right?
2: Interesting. It's not making headlines or it's not part of our normal conversation like it was.
1: But here's one thing COVID related yesterday that did make headlines. Okay. New York City uh, Supreme Court appeals, uh, New York City appeals judges' ruling that could reinstate fired unvaccinated employees. New York City is appealing a judge's ruling to reinstate municipal employees fired for not getting the COVID 19. vaccine Uh, Staten Island Supreme Court Justice Ralph Porzio ruled Monday that the vaccination requirement for a group of 16 sanitation workers suing the city is arbitrary and capricious being vaccinated. Listen to this line that he said being vaccinated does not prevent an individual from contracting or transmitting COVID-19. And because of that, Mm. he basically said Uh, Firing people who wouldn't get the vaccine. Mm. Arbitrary, capricious, all of this stuff. So people are going crazy. People in our area here, in the Chicagoland area, lost their jobs uh, around not getting vaccinated. People in New York and all this stuff. So people are starting to wonder, is this a kind of a bellwether? Uh Is this kind of what's coming? It highlights this fact. Uh, You remember when the vaccine came out and we were all like running to get it
2: yes well many of us were not everyone was running to yeah yeah
1: (laughs) uh but then we all got confused like why did i still get covid why does uh i think it is high this thing highlights yet again that we've never really known and i don't i don't go to like there was this big conspiracy there yeah Yeah. but also that there was a lot of guessing going on this and that and and uh, this highlights it. I think it will be fascinating if people are reinstated. And now part of this reinstatement is back pay.
2: <gasps> nice.
1: Because they were given nice. this. Nice. so Nice. I all of this. Yeah. I, want, I want to ask you this about Uh-oh. COVID. Uh-oh. Let oh, me ask no. you this about COVID. Okay. People to dive into the deep end today. Okay. Here Actually, we go. we're not. Here's what I want to. I want to know if you struggle with this. I know you guys had a huge tragedy a year ago around COVID. So I, I want to see yeah. what I'm about to say. I want to say recognizing that. Okay. Yeah. I struggle having empathy around COVID right now for anybody.
2: Unpack that. Say more words. Do you mean like if they get, if they get sick, you're like,
1: no, if they're nervous about it.
2: Oh, if they're nervous or if they want, about, if you it. go to a place, and there's very few places if
1: they want you to wear a mask or if If somebody around you is wearing a mask, it annoys me. (laughs) So
2: you have a close family member who has autoimmune issues and needs to be really careful. I do. And still you feel that way? What if they have cancer? What if they have this issues? You know what, what I mean? I
1: get it. I get it. And this is why I want to process this. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm right.
2: Okay. Okay. But
1: COVID has been relegated. In... or justified. <laughs> Good point. That's what this is. COVID has kind of been relegated in my in my mind to being a nothing thing. I, people yeah. keep getting it. Yeah. Uh, people Again, I want to acknowledge the tragedy you guys went through because this isn't true yeah. in Ke- your when life. What he's
2: talking about is Kevin's mom died of COVID a, a year, year ago. ago.
1: Correct. Yeah. Uh um, and we've had people kind of tangential to my family who have died along the way. But everybody that I'm close to, gotten it, gotten over it, fine. Uh, life back to normal. You know, but now when I here, let me give you the example. Now when I read uh, the CDC or whatever, yeah. say, hey, there might be a big outbreak coming in the winter.
2: You're kind of like meh. Hundred percent. Okay, What if I told you this? What if I told you that yesterday, 415 people in the U.S. died of covid? Two days ago, it was 196 people. So it's up quite a bit.
1: But I don't know how to even frame those numbers. Yeah. How many people died from trees falling in the US? You know what (laughs) I mean? How many people died from heart attack? So I don't know. And I want people to hear I've never been one of those like COVID doubters. You never. I got the vaccine. I closed our church. I'm a rule follower. We did all of these things. Yes. I think you used the correct word before, though, to how I respond to anything I hear about COVID.
2: Meh, Meh. like you're. Do you think? Okay, here's my real question.
1: It doesn't worry me, and I, I knock it it, on wood. All it, of this stuff.
2: Is it that? I mean, I do believe it doesn't worry you, but it, is it also maybe? I'm trying to like frame you in a better light. Maybe it's not that you've lost compassion. Maybe you're just over it. Yeah. Is that part of it too?
1: Yeah, I, okay. I do, and it does. I do. I think. Around COVID though I do struggle and and part of it is, you know, you read the news and like this person has been vaccinated five times yeah. and then they got COVID and you're like, Well, I don't know how to process yeah. that. Or yeah. people saying In Illinois we're still under emergency orders, but every state around us no longer is yeah. and you're like, Okay. But I do wonder if I've lost some empathy for people who are still maybe even rightfully scared of covid like I interesting
2: like, interesting you need to pray let's you, pray for brian you, right <laughs> now
1: <laughs> you did use the correct word meh
2: meh that's how you
1: what do you think is going to happen if there is an uptick this winter i don't think I don't there's think any appetite for anything and i think this is also what i've recognized about myself i think i would if they were like you need to get a mask on i'd be like no
2: yeah, I, I think that's ultimately I think if there is an uptake, nothing's going to happen, meaning no one's going to care enough to be like, I'm not putting masks back on. I'm not staying at home. I'm not. However, can I bring up something? It's a little bit tangential, but it is connected to this. Did you happen to watch, uh, what was it called, 38 at the Garden, the Lynn Sanity documentary on HBO Max?
1: No, but I want to because I I remember that. Powerful. Jeremy Lynn. It's
2: 38 minutes long in honor of that 38 (laughs) minutes, so it's a quick watch. It moves from celebrating Jeremy Lynn to talking about anti-Asian hate during COVID. Oh, wow. One thing, Yeah, one thing, and it does it beautifully, powerfully. It is well worth the watch. Everyone should watch it. But one of the things they talk about is how um, people, People of color, but especially Asian folks felt the need to mask up or to make sure their kids were masked up, because if little white Jimmy gets covid, they don't want to be blamed and their life risked for it. Uh. So I have compassion for people of color in situations like that. Their fear to me is understandable based on how they were treated. And though I'm with you. I would like us all to move on from COVID. I think there's a reality of privilege that's also part of the conversation that we need to own.
1: Is there ever a world where you would put masks on back in your church? Like, I tell them you have it. to no,
2: do it. No, I don't think so. I would be or shocked. Schools
1: or schools. I think so. Yeah. But I think that's the right answer. Yeah. I don't
2: think we should
1: go back to that. Yeah. But it just got me thinking. When I saw that that article, I went, good. Like, my first reaction was, like, good. Actually,
2: that should happen. I mean, I'm glad to hear people are going to get their jobs back and get back pay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think so. I don't know what to think of But I do think, you know what's reaction. funny?
2: I'm even hearing myself. I wonder... Like if we went back and heard old tape, quote unquote, of the common good, I might have been like, yeah, those people should get fired for not getting their vaccine. So it's funny how just like time and perspective change. I remember
1: at the very beginning, like Ian and I doing shows and I was like. I mean, this is, again, I think this all has to speak to, we were all trying to figure it out. Yeah. Do you remember the first week Ed Stetzer literally sent out a video that said, yes. pastors, you will have people in your church die. Yes. And I was like, w- w-
0: what's going
2: no, on? No, no. I mean, he was looking at China and I think Japan at the time as well, Italy and seeing how quickly things were moving and how much people were dying. And he sent out that video that. From
1: his basement. He but, looked yeah, like a hostage. yeah. And
2: I mean, you know, frankly, we did have a young man in our 20s. Uh, Something yes. year old young yes. man die of COVID a few months later, and so it. Now we have a small church, so I think the percentage was right on, like one person in our right. community. But young and unexpected. So, but yes, I remember that video, and it was a. Uh, I wonder, looking back, if Ed has regrets about that.
1: I, maybe. Yeah, Not maybe
2: it might have been a little fear mongering. I
1: do also think. When I look in the mirror here, I feel good about how I'm dealing with COVID and feel this. I don't necessarily feel good about, in general, my lack of feeling of empathy for those who are scared still. Yeah, or yeah. Or those yeah. who are being that cautious. That makes you a
2: jerk not justified, I, I think.
1: think I'm a, I think I've moved a little bit to a jerk. when like, like a I little see, Like when I see someone with a mask, I don't know their story, and I'm like... What
2: are you doing? <laughs> like and and I, I, I'm we'll only, pray for this confessions. Yeah, yeah, you're being, you're being real. We'll pray for you. I am a we'll jerk and not justified.
1: <laughs> Coming up next, Russell Moore wrote something fascinating over Christianity Today. What's wrong with winsomeness? The fruit of the spirit still apply in a hostile culture. Just mm. a fascinating and important work here that I want to uh, talk about next year on The Common Good. AM 1160,
0: hope for your life. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
1: Everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this hump day, on hump this on. Wednesday afternoon. Hope that you are having yourself just a wonderful day. Aubrey, is, she's here dancing in the studio I every time dancing. we come back.
2: I wasn't dancing last week, and this is a dancing You're week. It us. might be the weather. It might be that I'm back. I was traveling a little bit, you but now like I'm, I'm dancing. Your now.
1: energy level was low. Yeah. Like there was. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I was there. I went home you and I told, you... I told my wife, I think the days of our show might be coming to an end. <laughs> you're, like, <there. laughs>
2: you're like, I'm carrying the show. Up. i was barely even showing up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. I'm dancing, Ryan. I'm back. All right. The state of the American
1: church, evangelical church. You and I wrestle with that often. Uh, but whether it be social media or just the political world that we live in, Aubrey, people are, you know, they're tribal and there's a lot of anger out there. Russell Moore likes to step in the middle of that, try to call, uh, try to bring calm and some peace, and he then becomes kind of the uh, <laughs> the spot for anger. He definitely does. Day. So I want to read a little bit of what he wrote at Christianity Today, and I want you to answer a couple things. Okay. Is he right? Is this what people are like right now? Okay. And then what is the church's role in this? All right, let me read just the beginning of this. He says. A friend sent me a clip of two Christian political commentators arguing that their cultural opponents were so sinful that they had sunk to the level of subhuman. Well. Uh, this is demonic. Our enemies are demonic. One said, there's no turning the other cheek. There's no being winsome.
0: Hmm. This
1: trope is so common at this point that Russell Moore says, I wasn't even jarred to hear a professed Christian dismiss the literal words of Jesus Christ breathed out in Holy Scripture that his followers are too when struck, turn the other cheek. In fact, several years ago, I started hearing from pastors getting pushback from political factions in their congregations if their sermons included even a glancing allusion to love your neighbors, wow. uh, love your enemies, I'm wow. sorry, or turn the other cheek. What's startling to me He writes, is not the seeming biblical illiteracy of those assuming the actual words of the incarnate Son of God are liberal slogans Mm. along the lines of visualized world peace. Mm. It's that when pastors explain they're quoting Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount, the response doesn't change. Mm. That was fine for those times, the counter-argument will go, but not in a culture this hostile to Christianity. Mm. That doesn't work anymore. For this week can't be weak we have to
2: fight come on
1: what do you think what do you think about what he's trying to define a little bit of our culture do you think he's overstating it or or is he have the finger on the pulse here
2: well this is not the main point of what we're talking about but it's not like jesus was living in a culture that was for christianity i, <laughs> I mean think that's the point he's gonna like, make. let's yes. be honest uh, what did Jesus get crucified mm-hmm. like? So I I don't think that argument holds up at all. That's not the main point of what he's saying, but like that literally makes zero sense to say that was fine for those times, but not in a culture this hostile to Christianity. What was the Roman Empire like? I this is I that's absurd you, to me.
1: Russell Moore later on writes. It's hard to get more hostile than crucifixion.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. That, I mean, that shows the biblical illiteracy as well. I just think Russell Moore is flat correct. Mm-hmm. Um, For the Christian, like this is the call. And this is something that actually Catherine McNeil, who has been on our show before, she writes about. We've made Christianity into all kinds of things, some of which are not bad things. Learning good doctrine, having biblical literacy. But one of the things that we seem to have swept under the rug is that, like, the call is love God, love neighbor. And yeah. when Jesus is talking about neighbor, he means friends, strangers and enemies. Yeah. And it's because God loved us when we were his enemies. So we cannot sidestep this as Christians. Now, can we debate about what it means to love? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Love doesn't always mean you like that person. You're their best friend, et cetera. But it's certainly, I mean, Jesus even talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount, not like calling um, your brother or your enemy uh, names, not insulting them. not And that's what's happening here. And for Russell Moyer to say these are two Christian political commentators, you expect it of the world,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: not of followers of Jesus.
1: Yeah, and this is what becomes so difficult is... If there are, even if it's factions within our churches, within our Christendom, if you will, mm-hmm. who are taking the posture that says the words of Jesus don't work. And I would love to unpack what the word work means yeah. there. Yeah. But if there's this posture that says turning the other cheek, mm-hmm. loving your enemies, mm-hmm. pray for those who persecute you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we say that doesn't work now. Yeah. What does that say that we believe a about the sufficiency of Jesus? Yeah. But also about what we're trying to accomplish, right? right? Work seems to imply victory or whatever else. Like, that's a really troublesome trajectory. It's one thing to say, I know Jesus said that, but I just don't want to follow it. Just blatant disobedience versus... Yeah, I don't think that matters. That that works mm. now. I'm not going to do that now. Once we start disregarding the words of Jesus as Christ followers, we've gone down a really dangerous path.
2: You know what's so wild hearing this now? Last night, and I'm gonna talk about this a little bit later, but last night Kevin and I were at this event at Wheaton College remembering Emmett Till. And one of the special guest speakers was Reverend Whelan Parker, who is the last remaining eyewitness to the Emmett Till murder. Oh gosh. And his cousin. Emmett Till's cousin. Okay. okay? And this man, a reverend, obviously I just called him Reverend Wheeler Parker. He talked about from a place of such joy and delight, forgiveness, Mm. loving enemies. Um, There can be no hate. Hate does not override hate. Only love does. Like the way this man continued to bring his entire messaging back to the love of Jesus transformed him so he could forgive even Emmett Till's murderers. And he did say, Look, I still struggle sometimes, and the Holy Spirit will go, Bro, you can't. <laughs> and so it's like, if this guy, by the power of the gospel, can tell the rest of us to yep. love, yep. how can any of us who have, uh, how can any of us not choose? The words of Jesus, the action of Jesus to love our enemies. There's just it's just incongruent with the Christian faith, period. I'm not saying we do it perfectly. There's lots of people I don't love the way I should. And I, quote unquote, treat them like my enemies. And God has to help me with that. But I could never say that doesn't, quote unquote, work. In fact, the reason I brought that up is because last night, Reverend Wheeler said, the Bible works. The spirit mm. works. The only reason I'm here able to forgive and love is because the message of the gospel works.
1: I had that's, that's powerful. I would say this. If you do take a posture that says the words of Jesus don't work right now. So what's that implying? They don't get us to the end goal. They don't
2: get what. Yeah. The problem
1: isn't the words of Jesus. Then the problem is the end goal. Mm-hmm. Like, what is you? What are you trying good, to Brian. quote unquote work? What What's trying yeah. to be accomplished? That's what should cause you to look at America. Go, Wait a minute. If I actually perfectly lived out the words of Jesus right now, it would not land me in the place that I want to go. Yeah. The destination, therefore, is your problem. That's what's wrong. That is absolutely true. Good. Let me read how he Go ends. You ready, you ready to be challenged? Ready. You ready to feel it a little bit? Whew. If we obey Jesus only when the culture is neutral enough to allow us to do so and still win on our own terms, then Jesus is not Lord and we are not his disciples. Mm. He is our disciple and we are his Lord. Mm. And if we must adopt anti-Christ-like character to win Christian victories over a secular culture... Then perhaps we should wonder what's gone wrong. When the centurions start to look more valiant than the crucified, then maybe our culture wars have taken us away from the cross and towards something else. Mm. If the American church thinks turn the other cheek is surrender and weakness, wait until they hear, take up your cross and follow me.
2: Dang. Those my trap, the, Russell Moore. Those are
1: the words of Russell Moore, and I think they're ones that we really need to wrestle with well coming up next uh matt chandler posted something on instagram about a possible return and christian twitter exploded oh no you're not going to want to talk about it but we are going to talk about it next here on the common good am 1160 hope for your life you're listening to the common
0: good on am 1160 hope for your life
1: Wednesday, friends, and welcome back to the Common Good here on AM 1160 Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. The sun is shining, streaming through the windows here. Oh, no,
2: it's so lovely in the studio right yes. now. You're you're like reflected like an angel right now, Brian. Thank yep. you. You're welcome.
1: Again, I like to point out how we're getting old by little things. Yes. Would 25 year old Aubrey have come <laughs> It's so lovely out there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think she would have called her co-host on. Angel either.
1: And you also <laughs> earlier between while while we were waiting to come back on, you were like, I can't have coffee this late at night. we turned to like we could do the wow. same show thirty so, years from wow. now. Like you
2: and I. This is this is either depressing or fun. We're gonna celebrate our aging. We're either
1: old, young, or young, old. One of the two. I'm not sure which old, one we are. Young
2: or young old. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I think I'm young old. Okay. We'll give it to you. Okay.
1: All right. Uh, we talk often about the church, and I'll be Something that's been, sadly, a common theme since uh, The Common Good started four years ago with Ian and I, and then you came on two years ago, is this um, regular drumbeat, including our very first show, this regular drumbeat of pastors being removed, pastors in scandal, churches imploding, and just people commenting from the outside, all of this, celebrity, Christian, just trying to get our arms around all of it. And the one that really kind of shook me up recently, we, you and I talked about Matt Chandler, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was uh, down in Dallas. I've always, I've been very open on here that he's one of the pastors I'll listen to, uh, have high respect for, but his felt a little different, if not confusing.
2: Yeah, his felt confusing because it seemed that there was either inappropriate or just too comfortable, friendly... DM with a mutual friend of his wife and the husband. And what was confusing about this one, as at least as far as the information we were given, and that's all we can go by, is that it just seemed like there was a friendship, but somehow it, it crossed
1: some line. It
2: crossed some line, and therefore the elders felt like they needed to remove him for a time.
1: But nobody ever said it crossed a line physically, sexually, yeah. anything. It was yeah. a, a lot of like veiled language of inappropriate talk, yeah. inappropriate yeah. boundaries, whatever else it yeah. might be but then it and he stepped away or he was asked to step away and he's been gone for a while and there was always there was a perception among many people that the the dam is going to break there's going to be a lot more stuff here there's gonna be
2: stuff's going to come out right
1: and um but you and I talked a couple weeks ago maybe they're actually overreacting right. and trying to get ahead of this in light of all the stuff, at yeah. which point we would want to cheer this, or maybe there's, this could have gone in every direction. So yeah. uh, the story took a little bit of a move forward yesterday on Instagram. Okay. Matt Chandler uh, posted a picture of a tree with deep roots, mm-hmm. and it was very artistic, mm-hmm. and he wrote this. Jesus, I don't want to do this without you. That sentence has been my mantra these past few months. It has rolled through my mind and heart on repeat, whether it's been going on a walk, heading out to our river cabin, or even walking into jujitsu. I have been more aware than ever of that earnest and angsty prayer of David's in Psalm 27. He has been my sustaining grace and the strength of this season. I'm eager to return to the village church soon and am grateful for a family of faith that has loved me and my wife so deeply in this season. What a picture of gospel formed community you are eager to see what the Lord has for us in the next 15 to 20 years. So this was his first statement.
2: Oh, it was. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
1: And it seems to be implying that he's about to be coming back. Okay. So there's a couple different ways to respond to this. A lot of people online. Awesome. Great. Yeah. But then there were others... Who got super, super cynical. Let me read one of those tweets. So Matt Chandler is put on leave for inappropriate text with a woman and he gets to walk, talk to Jesus, spend time at the cabin and do jujitsu. All presumably while getting paid. That sounds amazing. Can the rest of us get these relaxing vacations by abusing power?
2: Mm. So
1: I I would love to. And there were a lot more tweets like that as well from the people you would expect those tweets from. Right, right. So I want to and I g again, people might say I have a blind spot for Matt Chandler. Love to listen to him sure. all this stuff. Sure. I've always had a lot of respect for him from sure. a distance, and that's part of the problem of this story is from a distance. Mm-hmm. But I wanna go, man, seems like their process worked or is working. Seems like the elders, you know, and him have been working. Yep. It seems like this and that. Yeah that I don't quite understand the cynicism of can the rest of us get these relaxing vacations by abusing power. So am I blind here or is this just the under, like how do you read the Matt Chandler thing? That seems to say there's that they've been working. They've been growing. uh They've been, he's been sat on the sidelines. They've been doing some behind the scenes work. Yeah. And now if their church is to the point where they're like, we think he's ready. Who am I from a distance to say? But I don't know. Maybe I'm just blind to what's been going on.
2: I think this is I I keep coming back to the same thing, which is that, like, I understand he's a public persona and that makes what I'm about to say difficult and tricky. I still feel like unless he's your pastor and you're in the community, you just don't get to speak into it. Mm. And that's, again, I recognize a plank in my own eye as someone on the radio, we talk about these sure. things, but I, I think there's some, I I don't have the Matt Chandler bias that you have. And so I, I actually, I mean, there's a lot about this particular tweet that you read that is problematic to me. One, we don't know if he was put on leave for inappropriate text with a woman. Um, and two, we don't know that he was abusing power. To me, the whole thing read as like he had a friendship with a woman and they freaked out. That was my problem with it more than anything. <laughs> it was like, felt like it was a Billy Graham rule, and I was annoyed by that. At the end of the day, it doesn't seem like he sinned. It doesn't seem like he abused a woman. It, and now, again, more might come out. I am very willing to say more might come out, but the fact is it hasn't. His wife has stood by him. His church has stood by him restoration seems to have happened. And this is not the same as Mark Driscoll in my mind. This is not the same as Mark Driscoll. And so I guess I don't understand what the problem is with someone taking a break, restoring their souls. Clearly if burnout led to whatever it is that happened, my only concern is with this woman who's never been named involved. Is she also being cared for by the church? That's my biggest concern. Um, What I don't like, Brian, and I just keep seeing it and it just messes with my soul. There seems to be a group of people who are particularly interested in tearing, 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 tearing down the church in a way that is no longer actually about love for the church and bettering yeah, the church. Um, yeah, we you call know that it? Christian
1: TMZ a little bit.
2: Yeah, and there is a place for abuse of power to come out. Trust me, I don't want that stuff hidden. The Lord needs to bring them out. God is cleaning house in a lot of ways. But I also think this sort of reaction of like every pastor's bad, everything's evil, the church is all terrible all the time. It's become its own little cottage industry, as we said. And I just think it lacks a fear of God and a reminder that this is the Lord's bride. Mm. And so I I think this goes too far. That's a long way of saying, I see that it's complicated. I think this has gone too far.
1: I, uh, this is, the the toothpaste is out of the bottle on this one. But the same way that we're saying, I I wish that people would just let the church deal with their in-house issues here. Yeah. The reason they can't is because... Millions of people listen to him, right. listen to Driscoll. I understand. Listen. Yeah. No, but what I'm saying is this is where the toothpaste is out, and I wish we could put it back. Yeah. I almost wish somebody like Matt Chandler or somebody like whoever would say, you know what? At least for a season, we're not putting our sermons up on, on totally. uh Apple. We're not putting yeah. them up on Spotify. Yeah. You, if you are not physically in our building, yeah, you cannot hear these messages. Yeah. And we talk a lot about how do we deal with celebrity Christians? Mm I think that's the answer. Mm, localizing it. Localize it. Yeah. You're welcome to visit. You're yeah. welcome to this. And I'll speak at, you know, be, if I were Matt Chandler, I'll speak at conferences. Mm-hmm. You can hear me there. This, you can that. read but, my books. But when yeah. it comes to week in, week out, this is where we got the cult of personality, the celebrity yeah. Christian. I'm right there. I spent years listening to Mark Driscoll's sermons, listening yeah. to the Matt Chandler's sermons. And yeah. I've been edified by them by some. But now you look back and you're like, eh. I know. If we, in the good times... Stop celebrating and like, then because in some level the fact that we do hold them up like that allows us to then make sense. When you fall, we're all coming for it. you. Yeah. You were yeah. a celebrity before. You're a celebrity now, yeah. and I think that's what makes me so uncomfortable about these stories. I would love it if they, if the Village Church came out and said, "You know what? One of the things that we're going to do here for a season, we're not putting a number on that yeah. season. Yeah, is." Uh, We are going to live stream our services, but only for our people who can't be there. We're Mm -hmm. even going to give you a code Mm -hmm. so you can watch it. And otherwise, the only people are going to hear these sermons are the people who are here. Yeah, yeah. And that's just, we we decided that that is how it's going to be healthy. Yeah, there's something
2: interesting about that. Yeah, people
1: might might be out there going, yeah, but then think about the hundreds of thousands or millions of people who have been blessed. But go be blessed in your local church. Yeah, go
2: be blessed in your local church. (laughs) Be blessed with your Christian community. Be blessed reading your Bible.
1: It's never going to happen, but it breeds this celebrity culture world where once something falls, celebrity, a Christian TMZ comes down and it goes there. So uh, it's, we're going to see where this plays out. I I'm cheering them on. I I think this one can end well. Maybe I hope so. Maybe that's just me hoping. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Aubrey, coming up next, I have three random stories okay to read for you and i just want you to respond to each one of them we're just gonna have some fun okay because these stories are crazy
2: i am looking forward to this
1: dude next here on the common good am 1160 hope for your life
0: you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life
2: What does it mean to carry your cross? And later, we're joined by author Jenny Booth-Potter discussing why doing nothing is no longer an option. You're listening to The Common Good. wednesday evening my name is aubrey sampson alongside my co-host brian from we love that you're with us today if you've missed any of today's show we want to invite you to go back and catch up on our podcast wherever it is you cast those pods of yours we also love engaging with you on social media we are at common good talk on twitter instagram and facebook brian okay Mm -hmm. you just shared some wild news stories with me uh at the bottom of the last hour, I'm going to share one with you, and then we're going to talk about something a little bit serious. Okay. Did you hear about the Chicago man who died with a secret $11 million?
1: A secret eleven? No, I did not.
2: Yes! Apparently, he had $11 million in his estate secretly. Nobody knew about not it. Not
1: even like his family not didn't know?
2: Not even his family. He died, with the, which marked the highest unclaimed estate in the nation. Apparently, it's being divided up between 119 relatives.
1: Wow. That's a lot of money. Um,
2: It it probably said what he did. That's all I can tell with you. But can you can you uh... what's weird about that
1: story is they never knew he had like it sounds like it was shocking that he had any amount close to that. So did he live like a pauper or did he
3: there's
2: obviously an estate involved. So I think they must have known that he had some type of money, right? right? But I think the shocking part was that it was how much accumulated wealth he had. I mean, because this is a life changing amount of money, right? 11 million. Okay, so here's the really important question. What would you do if you found out you had a, a relative and you were about to get, let's just say all of it, let's say $11 million. What are you doing with that 11 mil?
1: Uh, that's a great question. And it can't
2: be, like, altruistic. Like, nothing, like, yes. Well you're
1: only saying that because every time we've asked a question like that, yours isn't altruistic. Mine
2: isn't, and I want to be on the same level as you. uh,
1: I would buy a bigger house. Not, like, an enormous house, but a nicer house. Okay. I would... Uh, vacation. Yeah. I would go on vacation and yeah. probably get myself a beach house somewhere yeah. that I can enjoy. I, yeah. uh, you and I have talked about this type of thing. The
2: vacation home feels yeah. like kind of the you way we both usually
1: answer that as I would spend it all on myself and Disney spend World. it all.
2: No, I would I spend it all on myself like that, at Disney World. You need that
1: <laughs> much money to go to Disney World these <laughs> That's other days. That's
2: true. It's so sad. I'm so heartbroken about this. All right. So isn't that kind of crazy? That's right in our north of our woods died with $11 million. All right. Let's get a little more serious now. Brian, what do you think it means we talked about this a little bit earlier when we talked about Russell Moore's article, but the concept of carrying your cross. Yes. What we know what that means generally. I think so. What do you think it means uh, to have a lifestyle of carrying your cross in 2022 suburbs of Chicago?
0: Oh, that's a
1: great question, because we all preach that and we don't do it in such a way that is like. Honest to the fact of what Jesus was saying was, "Be willing to go suffer and die like Be I am willing
2: to die, yeah,
1: like we always have to like make it more metaphorical like well, <laughs> therefore, but <laughs> I do so think true. one thing it means in Dupage County in uh you know twenty twenty two is uh don't always make it about your rights mm. uh, and i don 't even necessarily wow. mean rights in terms of legal rights, mm-hmm. but I mean. You know what? Maybe not everything is going for you is about is this the best possible outcome for me? Wow. Uh, but maybe I'm searching for the best possible outcome for my neighbor Wow! or my whoever else it might that's be. Good, Brian. So that's one way I'd go with it. How about you? Because it's a hard one. We preach it. Jesus says take up your cross and follow me. I really don't have to worry about being hung on a cross. Right. But the call is the same.
2: Oh, the call is the same. And I, 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 I think it is hard not to think metaphorically and maybe it's because we want to make the teaching easier, right? Like if the call is to come and die right we want to be like and that means you yes you know i don't know you put the other person first you get them a glass of water when you want a glass of water like we don't actually count the cost yeah, of this yeah. but i do think that part of it is like there is a cost obviously to taking up your cross and i don't think that any of us can do it outside of the holy spirit empowering us to in the moments when we need to Churchleaders.com is talking about this, and they ask that same question. What does it mean to carry your cross? Robin A. Riggs is writing about this. She says that as a teenager, I once heard my pastor say that Jesus has many admirers, Mm. but not enough followers. It's powerful. She says, the statement stuck in my head because there are many who attend church weekly, but their professions of Christianity may be lived out superficially or at any rate at their convenience. That that was very convicting to me. Am I living a convenient Christianity versus one that takes up the cross of Jesus? She says following Jesus means to walk in his footsteps, not merely acknowledging his existence or quote agreeing with his teachers. But take upon yourself Jesus's purpose and mission in the world. Mm. She says it means braving the dangers of an evil world for the sake of an unbendable love for God and for people. And really what she talks about is living as a genuine Christian is this a lifestyle of the cross. Mm. She talks about how we can have joy in carrying our cross. She talks about. Um, carrying our cross, rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Then she also says this. When many think of cross bearing, they think of an attitude of resignation to human frailties. Mm -hmm. Instead, what the Bible speaking of is the complete and loving identification of our lives with Christ, what he stands for, what he wants to accomplish through us in this dark world. This is interesting, Brian. You and I talk a lot about the um, like prosperity gospel. Yeah. She talks about how the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity may attract some people by appealing to their desire for pleasure, but that's not the gospel of the cross. Mm. Uh, what do you think about all it, of that?
1: She's right. It's so hard to... It's so hard to apply this to our lives right now. I'm glad, don't get me wrong, I'm really glad I don't have to worry about the cross or like the literal cross or lions or whatever else it might be beheadings. Like, I'd not like, oh my gosh, I wish I had that in Mm -hmm. my life, but it does make it difficult to actually internalize Jesus's words of take up my cross and follow me, or the things Paul says in Philippians or you know, as he's facing death. But I do think it is right. It's that idea of Mm self-sacrifice. It's that idea of um, putting others above myself. It's that idea of what, you know, the opposite of Mm -hmm. the prosperity gospel. I I do think she's right.
2: Yeah, I think it's so fascinating. And I told you I was going to come back to this story. But last night, uh, Kevin and I and a group of people from our church attended an event at Wheaton College um, called Remembering Emmett Till, and it, there there's was a movie a, coming out. Right, there's a movie coming out, which they didn't actually talk about. I thought oh, that really? they would. I would have yeah. thought that's
1: why they had the no, event a- in the first place. Apparently,
2: these authors have books coming out, so it was okay. more connected to that. But um, Dr. Dave Tell, who wrote the book called Remembering Emmett Till, and then. Reverend Wheeler Parker, who I said earlier, was Emmett Till's cousin, and he is the last remaining eyewitness to the murder of Emmett Till. He and, witnessed the murder. Well, here's what he talked about. He was in the house with Emmett the night that um, men came knocking on their door saying, who are the two boys from Chicago? And here's what he says. He That's the night that Emmett was dragged down okay. and killed. And he says that he remembers literally shaking and um, and knowing he was about to die, and what's wild to hear him talk about this story is he said before they even went to Mississippi from Chicago. He and Emmett both knew, if we go to the South, we're going to die. Like, one wrong move, we're going to die. And Dang.
1: How old was he again?
2: Uh, well, Emmett was 14, okay. and Reverend Wheeler, Wheeler Parker was, I believe, 16 at the time. Oh, my goodness. And um, he didn't die that night, but he lived with so much fear. I mean, imagine being a young boy and, and thinking, tonight I'm going to die Because my friend whistled at a white woman and he talks about obviously like the fear, the anxiety, the hate, the, but he also talks about how that night he, he literally went before the Lord and was like, God, I will do you kind of the prayer. We all pray in like fearful moments. God, I will do whatever it takes. I will start living for you all of a sudden. And he said, um, oh, it took a long time after of course the tragedy of the event Um, But he really met Jesus and God transformed him. The reason I'm talking about this in picking up our cross is this is a guy, Brian, Mm -hmm. nobody, no, no um, investigator, no FBI person, no scholar, no anyone related to this case, talked to him or interviewed him until 1985. It's unbelievable. 30 years later. Here is a guy taking up his cross. Like mm. he had witnessed the most gross injustice of a friend of a cousin of a family member, literally fearing his life and being ignored the whole time. And yet here's a guy who last night was standing in front of Wheaton college saying, love your enemies Love is the answer. The love of Jesus changes everything. The word of God, the gospel. I mean, it was so powerful, Brian. And I think that's a profound example for all of us when we are faced with hate, with suffering, with hardship, with evil to still choose love because of what Jesus has done in your life that to me is an yeah. example of what it means to take up your
1: cross. Is there a reason these movies and books are coming out now? I
2: wonder. I started to wonder, are we getting near an anniversary or it's because the case finally closed? Like the case just closed
3: for real yes
2: isn't that wild (laughs) and so i'm i'm wondering if that's part of it like so now stories can finally be told but uh some the movies look really good it really looks powerful anyway well coming up next we are joined by andrea coley she's the executive director of lead bold she's a teaching pastor at a church in california they have a conference coming up next week empowering women in leadership going to be really really incredible We'll talk with her when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
0: You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson. Alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, we are thrilled to be joined right now by Andrea Coley. She's the executive director of Lead Bold and a teaching pastor at Crosswinds Church in California. Andrea, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. So glad to be with you over the airwaves today. Yeah, this is so fun. So, Brian, I haven't told you this. Andrea and I met at uh, Nancy... Was it Nancy Ortberg's house? Who's house? We were at Nancy-, Nancy, Nancy Beach. Nancy Beach's house. Name Much dropper. different. Yeah, name yeah, yeah I'm name-dropping <laughs> for you. Uh, along, with, <laughs> along with some other women in leadership in the Chicagoland area to talk about this uh, ministry, Lead Bold, and they have a conference coming up next week. So, Andrea, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how Lead Bold got started.
3: I would love to do that. You know, it all started with a conversation, like many things do, where uh, me, along with a couple of other women who were leading in pastoral ministry, kind of recognized that there wasn't a lot out there for us. Um, There certainly were leadership spaces and church spaces and women's spaces, but not much that overlapped all three. And um, for any woman who's leading in a ministry space, um, it can be lonely and it can be hard to find other women who get you. And so it all started with that. And we just kind of kept listening and following the next step where God was leading. And it ended up in a conference over in my neck of the woods in California Mm. four years ago. And we've just been (laughs) following the next step along the way.
1: Uh Andrew that's wonderful kind of leading uh going where God is leading you. I think that's so encouraging. What's the feedback you get as people have come uh and you dreamed this up and now they you know it's happening. What is the feedback that you get as women are connecting with each other?
3: It's really critical I think one of the things we're hearing is that just the attention to attend to what the leaders need. Um, so often as leaders, we're the ones pouring out and doing all the things for all the people. <laughs> and right. God calls us to do that, which is beautiful. And we step into that with joy, hopefully. But um, at the end of the day, it can be depleting, you know, yeah. especially over the last few years. So what we mostly hear is just sort of that. Ability to rest in a space where it's safe and where it's for you mm. and where someone else is pouring into you. Mm.
2: Oh, it's so beautiful. I, as, a, as a leader myself, I'm like, oh, yes, you're speaking my language. Um, Andrea, so <laughs> right. you have an event coming up next week here in the Chicagoland area. So this is your first ever Chicago conference. Can you tell our listeners about it and how they might, uh, you know, attend
3: Thank you for that. Yes, we are so excited to get to be in Chicagoland. Um, you know, one of the things that we recognized pretty early on as we started doing conferences and some other gatherings for women in ministry was that um, while we love that there's so much online and it's so accessible... There is something really special, dare I say magical, (laughs) Um, being in a room together in person and being able to look at somebody in the eye and not know her name not know her context, but know that she gets you in a certain way and that you have something in common and that you can come alongside one another in really important ways. And so what that means is for us who we're doing this conference over in California, we know that um, we, not everyone is going to be able to make it to California, so our big dream was to have this conference in other locations. And again, with that mindset of just kind of following God's lead, Long story short, mm-hmm. uh, we connected with some leaders there in Chicago, and they said, yes, let's do it. We need this over here. So so next week, um, on the 3rd and the 4th, we are gathering women who are leading in ministry spaces all around Chicago to come together to be poured into, like I was talking about, um, and a little bonus, not a little bonus, a very cool bonus, we're partnering with Northern Seminary um, with their Center for Women and Leadership, and on the day before the conference, on the second, we're offering offering a pre conference with two of their professors, um, just to be really diving into wow uh, biblical women and what we learned from them in our leadership. That's awesome. Wow, that's
1: wonderful, Andrea. You you spoke about this was birthed a little bit out of just a recognition that you know leaders tend to get lonely. Uh, you know, kind of that roller coaster. You know, the low times can be really difficult if you don't have other people around you. I'm wondering what your story is. Where, what did you do before things like this existed to kind of persevere and grow? And how has that kind of manifested itself in this?
3: My story is one that is probably familiar to many women, where I grew up in the context of the church that told me I could only lead so far. Mm-hmm. And there was a real line there about where I could go. Yeah. Um My youth pastor's wife once said to me, "In what I think for her was probably the greatest compliment, and I kind of kick it as such, that someday I would make a great youth pastor's wife. Oh, (laughs) And I look back on that now with a different lens, and I know that she meant that as just the most affirming and encouraging thing from her context, but... As a mom of two daughters, um, I am so joyful to know that they see me teach and preach and they see me lead and that they're growing up in a really different context. So all that to say, I think my story was kind of one of evolving, um, where my own theology changed, um, my own kind of what I was looking for and who I was looking for changed. Mm. And along the way, you know, um, God did provide those people, both men and women, who invited me into leadership spaces. Um, so it was sort of that mix, uh, Brian, of people coming alongside and encouraging me and affirming me in my teaching gifts and leading gifts. And at the same time, knowing that there still was a little bit of a deficit yeah. you know, for, that, for me and that it was still lonely. And I certainly did serve on staff in churches where... Uh, It mattered that I was a woman and not a man. And I felt very limited because of that.
2: Mm, So real, Andrea. Um, Andrea, one of our friends, friends of the show, she's been on the show before. Tara Beth Leach, I know, is speaking at the Lead Bold Conference. You've got some other speakers, some other breakouts. Can you give our listeners just kind of a taste of what will happen at the conference?
3: Yes. Uh, Like I said, we design it really specifically for women to pour into them as leaders, as leaders in ministries. And so the way that we do that is we hit it from a lot of different angles. So we've got kind of our large group gathering where we get to hear amazing teaching um, from Tara Beth Leach from Barb Ruth, from Jenny Wong. It is just like a full force, like God speaking into you, encouraging you, equipping you. But in addition to that, then we break out to a little bit more curated space. So we have four workshops ranging from anywhere from how do men and women lead alongside each other in the church to how to lead through really intentional conversations to how to have sacred rhythms in your leadership Mm -hmm. space, to how shame might be hindering your leadership. And so we've got these four different breakouts where you can kind of pick which ones to go to. In addition, we carve out time for small groups because, you know, processing in real time with what God's doing in you is really an important way to process for many people, so we have small group time. And then in addition to that, because as leaders, even though we know it is so important to have that alone time with God, it's also so very hard to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So we actually take um, time in our conference together to give you sort of a short prompting message and then say, okay, you're on your own for the next half an hour, 45 minutes, just you and God. That's the only voice to listen to. Wow. And we hear from women sometimes. that is the most significant time of the conference. So we kind of try to make it where, you know, everybody kind of connects with different aspects of it and our hope and our trust, is that God's going to speak a very specific word to each woman because we're making ourselves available to listen and we're making the space to do that. Oh, I love that. If you're a woman in ministry or maybe you know someone
2: who is, you can send them to the website, leadingbold.org slash conferences to find out more about the Chicago event happening on November 3rd and 4th with a pre-conference on November 2nd. Andrea, where can our people connect with you and all that you're doing?
3: So we, uh, Lead Bold is on um, Instagram and Facebook at Leading Bold. And then, as you said, the website has all the information. And we would love to hear from you, connect with you, find out how uh, we can come alongside and bolster your leadership in whatever space God has you. Oh, wonderful.
2: Andrea Coley is the Executive Director of Lead Bold and Teaching Pastor at Crosswinds Church in California. Be sure to go to that website, leadingbold.org slash conferences. Find out more about next week's event. Andrea, thanks so much. For being here with us. Thank you so much. It was great to be together. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
0: You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
2: Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. Something that Brian and I are passionate about talking about is anti-racism and racial justice. And so we are thrilled to be joined by Jenny Booth Potter. She's a creative producer, storyteller and co-host of The Next Question, a web series about expanding our imagination for racial justice and she's the author of a brand new book called Doing Nothing is No Longer an Option, One Woman's Journey into Everyday Anti-Racism. That guest is Jenny Booth Potter. Jenny, thanks so much for being here with us today.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
2: Um, Jenny, so why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and why you began on this journey towards anti-racism?
3: Yeah, so I, um, I am a 40-something mom. <laughs> I'm a white woman. I'm raising two white boys who are in kindergarten and third grade. And I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And really, uh, from a really young age, uh, conversations about race were very much not on the table. I think, you know, in my book, I kind of explore my earliest racialized memories, which were all incredibly confusing and with very little guidance from anyone around me. and. Uh, when I entered college, I went to school uh, in the city in Chicago, and they had a racial reconciliation trip that they offered the students. And I had a girlfriend who had gone on the trip, and she was like, you should really go. Like, Mm -hmm. I think this would be really good for you. And at first, I met that with some resistance, and I felt like there was some judgment. And I ended up going on that trip. And it it literally—I mean—it changed the way I saw the world. It changed the way I saw uh, my own personal um, relationship with race and racism, and it changed how I looked at history and mm. how uh, what I had been handed was really a not just missing, uh, missing true history, but intentionally left out mm. history. Um, and so I realized that my friends kind of in. Uh, insistence that I go on this trip wasn't, wasn't like a call out. It was really an invitation. And Mm so it was on that bus trip. um, We went to different different civil rights sites and we went to a lynching museum and we went to all these like horrific, um, you know, just realities of our country's history. And uh, I had this just moment, this aha moment of um, doing nothing is no longer an option for me. Like Mm -hmm. this is not, this is not just me being a nice person. This is not just me being like a nice Christian girl. And that, that is, if that would be enough, like I have to, to really take it a step beyond. So I wanted to write this book because I didn't have anyone um, walking this journey with me. When I began, it was, it was pretty lonely. And the more that I have dug into this work as a white woman, I think that's how a lot of people, a lot of white people feel on this journey is they feel really misled and the circles that they're joining might look a lot more diverse than the ones they've been a part of. Yeah. And they're really trying to figure out what what is their role in, in that space. They don't want to take up too much space, but, you know, they want to be respectful of the people they're following. But they're also trying to really reckon with their own past. And so um, I think it's a both and, right? I think it's we do have to examine our own. We have to kind of center ourselves. In order to decenter ourselves, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but we really do have to wrestle with our own history and our own uh, our own ways that we've been complicit.
1: That's good. And Jenny, again, the book is called "Doing Nothing Is No Longer an Option." So let me ask you this: if obviously doing nothing is no longer an option, what does doing something look like?
3: Yeah, the way I tell people, especially when people start talking to me, usually they are convinced that they want to do something. So that that decision has already been made. They're not. People that I usually come across are not, they're not like, oh, I don't actually think this matters or like they, they see, they see the injustice and they see they have a heart for, for, for good and for justice and for changing, um, changing what's been done. And what I say to people is you start where you are with what's closest to you. And so I, what I really encourage people to do is, uh, I think there's this almost this, um, especially for people that were raised in the church, almost like a missionary attitude of like, okay, so what I have to do is like sell all my stuff and move to a different neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I got, you know, I got to attend a different church. And as if, there, as if racism is out there and not where you actually are. And so what I really encourage people to do is you look at your home, you look at the people in your home, you look at um, ways your family is spending their money and their time you're learning from and how you're, uh, how you're raising your kids and i also tell people you start with what's going to build momentum not like clobber you so a lot of people i think they are told like oh if you really want to you know be an ally or start your racial justice journey you basically have to call out all your racist relatives and ruin thanksgiving <laughs> like that's kind of what you know like don't let these jokes go by which pro- yes you probably shouldn't but if you if that's your first action, that's really scary. You're yeah. you're you're playing you're you're threatening some real ties, and so I I want people to have some thickening of their skin before they yeah before they go in places that they really might be um, fought against. And so I I really encourage people to to look at your everyday choices, um, and, and you know there's there's a lot of in my book I talk about there is no such thing and I've learned this from other scholars but there is no such thing as Mm non-racist right it's either things are either racist or they are anti-racist and so if you are making choices like if it really is a reframe of holding up every choice you make and say is this is there because it's not just racist interactions right it's systems that we participate in it's um it's all these other things that that uh, that are part of our lives. And I think just that one shift, if you start building that muscle, you'll be surprised at how how choices feel. Uh, yeah, just how choices feel like you're like, oh my gosh, this work doesn't stop. It's everywhere. Like, I don't have to move to the South side of Chicago or I don't have to send my kids to, you know, an all black school or something. Like, no, the spaces that you are in as a white person are inherently racist. Yeah. And so it's up to you to determine if you're going to, continue them or if you're going to challenge them. Mm,
2: that's so great, Jenny. Um, <clears throat> Jenny, Brian and I are both pastors. And so for us, we're always kind of asking, how does this conversation relate to the church and how can church leaders lead their own mm-hmm. folks in anti-racism? What do you think about this conversation on a communal level from the church? Any tips for pastors and church leaders, I guess is what I'm really asking.
3: Oh my gosh, I love this question. I My mother-in-law was asking me this morning if this is like, is this like a faith-based book? And I was like, absolutely. Like, I hope people that are part of church communities read this, and I hope they read it together. And um, so much of my work history has been in has been in churches, and um, I think I think the important thing. What I ultimately came away from um, from my experience in church was it's really less about who is in the pew next to you and it's really about which Jesus you are following mm-hmm. and what I mean by, what I mean by that is I think there's this understanding that we're all building the same kingdom of you know the kingdom of God here on earth and I don't I don't think that's actually true and so in my book I really um, I, I explain my own journey of recognizing you um, Kind of the what I fed my entire life was really the gospel of white Jesus. Yeah, it was the gospel yeah. of individualism. It was the gospel of um, influence and and excellence and perfection yeah. and um, and and it was not a communal gospel. Mm-hmm. And it was not. It was it was very um, fear based. Yeah. And that is the the you know the Jesus that I follow now is not fear based. He is incredibly love based, and he does not. Um, further cause oppression. He, you know, the oppressed want to be with him. And so I I think a lot of times there is, um, and for, for, I understand the reasoning, right? We hear Martin Luther King's uh, words from the sixties of 11 a.m. Sunday, Sunday at 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in our country. And it you know, it still is that way. So I think there is a very real longing for our communities to reflect the Omago Day and reflect the diversity that that God created intentionally. Yep. Uh, but I think a lot of churches start there, and they and they don't look at what, what theology are we rooted in. Mm. And because, like I just said, it's either going to be a racist theology, which is like, really, you know, I know that's like a blunt way of putting it, right. but it's true. It's either going to be racist theology that hypes up this um uh this white Jesus and yeah. all that he stands for, or it is going to be an anti racist yeah. theology. And so I, I think it's it's both and and I think you know the fruit will be telling of what mm-hmm. what um what ultimately does your congregation start to look like. And and I don't mean by like color. I mean by like what fruit is being born mm-hmm. in there because um because what he's a, his fruit is sour. It does not you know and it, yeah. it does not last. It's gonna spoil. And so um, I, I would just love that reframing, and um, that we don't start with with the optics, right? Awesome. We kind of we we kind of put those to the side and say, what are we really about? Who are we really following?
2: Oh, I love that, Jenny. Jenny Booth Potter is the author of Doing Nothing Is No Longer an Option. You can actually use a code just for our listeners. It's Common Twenty Two. You can go to ivp or excuse me, ivpress dot com, and with that code again, it's Common Twenty Two. Get 30% off plus free shipping on both the ebook and the hard copy of Jenny's new book, Doing Nothing Is No Longer an Option. Jenny Booth-Potter, thanks so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I really,
3: really appreciate the time.
2: Brian and I will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian from I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
0: Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency. Knew all the government's